Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Monday, January 8th. When they paid for window seats, this is not what they were thinking of. We start here. A hole opens up on the side of a plane 16,000 feet in the air. It seemed like something rushed into the cabin and then rushed out. Now officials have grounded some aircraft in search of answers. The defense secretary was hospitalized, but no one told the president. President Biden is exasperated by this situation. What it means for our military and for the White House. And he's just trying to keep it to one war in the Mideast. This is a conflict that could easily Metastasize. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is telling other countries, keep your militants in check. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. You know the emergency instructions on a plane? There's always the part where they tell you, if the cabin suddenly loses pressure, your oxygen masks will drop. Put on your own before assisting those next to you. Well, that whole demonstration looks very calm because guess what? The cabin hasn't lost pressure right then. Well, when an aircraft in real life loses cabin pressure, it means that seal between the inside and outside has snapped. Yes, we are emergency. We are depressurized. And in the case of an Alaska Airlines flight this weekend, it meant that a piece of the wall separating passengers from sky burst open, leaving a hole in the side of their plane. It seemed like something rushed into the cabin and then rushed out. Before the flight attendants even said anything, we were all grabbing the oxygen mass. When it landed, we got our first look at the damage to this aircraft, and it was shocking. Because from the outside, it looks like an aircraft door came open, like the emergency exit or something. But from the inside, you can see from these photos, this is not an emergency exit road, but rather just a piece of the wall that had just popped off. As of this morning, entire fleets of aircraft are grounded as officials examine them. Let's go straight to ABC's Sam Sweeney, who covers transportation. Sam, this was absolutely shocking. Can you just clarify like what we're talking about? It's a door, it's a wall, and what happened? Brad, on this particular airplane, there was a space in the fuselage for an emergency exit door if an airline needs it. When you have a low-cost carrier, for example, in Europe, let's use Ryanair, if they were flying on this plane and they have more than 200 people on the plane, they need more emergency exits. And Boeing, when they're building this plane, they allow that option. Alaska said, we're not going to put that many people on our plane. We have a coach cabin and a first class cabin. So we're going to have fewer people. We don't need as many emergency exits. So you can just seal it up with a plug. And that's what came loose somehow on this plane and blew out. So the door is, it's, it's, it's like a door was there, but it just serves as a piece of the wall on the plane on this flight. Exactly. If you were to look at the plane from the outside, you would see a line that appears to be where a door could go, an emergency exit door that's, that's much smaller than a regular door. But from mm. the inside of the plane, if you were sitting there, it would look like you were just in a regular window seat. It was a few minutes after takeoff, Friday night, when this plane was leaving Portland. It was headed to Ontario, California. They were 
taking off 16,000 feet up. I didn't even know we took off, honestly. And then, yeah, I'm sleeping and I just feel the plane drop. All of a sudden, this just blast happens and this plug blows away from the plane. There was a, a really loud pop or a loud bang and like a whoosh of air and the oxygen masks came down at the same exact time. Did somebody fall out of the plane? You know, what? what is happening? What, what did we hit something? Did something hit us? We just had no idea. And so it was a lot of confusion. Meantime, up in the flight deck, the pilots are trying to figure out what happened here. Hey, Portland, approach Alaska 12 to emergency aircraft from now leveling 12,000. You can hear on the emergency or on the air traffic control recordings, them telling we are descending back towards 10,000 feet. That's where oxygen becomes breathable again, mm. um, and they can figure out what happened. Wait, and so amid all that, no one gets seriously hurt, Sam? It's unbelievable uh, what happened here. This really was the perfect storm. A side of the airplane blows off, nobody's hurt. No one was seated in 26A and B. Where it blew off, the two seats next to it were empty. Mm. Had someone been sitting there, it would have been a much different situation. On 26A and 25A, the headrests are gone. If you look at the pictures, the cushions on the seat were blown off. It tore off her son's shirt. Passengers describe a t-shirt being sucked off a child and out the window. You'll also notice there weren't a lot of cell phone videos. There was some, but not a lot, because a lot of people lost their cell phones. When the cabin depressurizes, anything that's not tied down is sucked out. That brings me to my next point. They were at 16,000 feet just a few minutes after takeoff, which means everybody was still buckled in. Oh. Had this been at the cruise level when the flight attendants were out giving food or drinks, people were walking to the restrooms, they would have been sucked out. It would have been a much worse situation. And Sam, just so like, because I'm not like, I don't know anything about aeroscience or anything. So you literally would get sucked out of the plane. That's how pressure works. It's, it's more pressure inside than outside. So you, things want to get out of the plane. Think about when you open up a soda can. Before you open it, it's, it's you know, rock solid. But then once you open it, you can kind of crush the can because the pressure has equalized. And it's only a quick second when that release happens. So once the immediate release happens, the plane quickly pressurizes to what's outside. Mm. So anything that wasn't tied down in that specific moment is gone if you are in fact, near that doorway or near that hole. That is absolutely unbelievable. And so I can't help but notice, Sam, this was a Boeing Max plane, right? This is the same type of airliner that was grounded worldwide after all those crashes years ago. The plane was redesigned before it was certified to fly again. But I mean, does this all raise new questions about safety now? Look, the Max name will always ring a bell when it comes to safety issues because of those two planes that went down and the worldwide grounding you know, for, for many, many months until they could figure what happened here. This is a totally separate issue, but you can bet that these investigators on from the NTSB, the FAA, the airline and Boeing are looking to figure out what happened here. We are the global gold standard for safety around the world, but we have to maintain that standard. Was this a individual event on this particular airplane where, you know, someone who was installing this part when it came down from the factory messed up somewhere? Or is this some sort of structural problem that's on a number of airplanes? Right. That's what they need to figure out. And that's why all of these planes are grounded. The 737 MAX 9 version uh, 
is, is the one that is affected by this. And there's about 170 of them worldwide um, that are affected by this that have, have been grounded. And does that mean that does that affect air travel over the next several days or weeks or anything, Sam? It is. Here in the United States, United Airlines and Alaska are the two carriers that fly the MAX 9 planes. So Southwest doesn't, American doesn't, Delta does not fly it. But United, they're already dealing with a slew of cancellations along with Alaska, mm. of course. What they're trying to do is move planes around. Uh, you know, for example, if United has 15 flights a day from Newark to Chicago, well, maybe they can reduce that to three, take three of those planes mm. and place them in other parts of the system. But regardless, they don't have enough planes um, and some flights are going to be canceled until they can get them back up into the air. But before they do that, they need to figure out if this is affecting just one plane or all of the fleet. Right, kind of a secondary concern when it comes to the safety issues here, which, like you said, both the government and the plane maker, Boeing, are going to be investigating in the days and weeks to come. All right, Sam Sweeney from our transportation unit. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Next up on Start Here, would you want your boss to know you were in the hospital? Okay, what if your boss was the president? We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life you got to compromise on. Like when I want burritos, but my wife wants salad, the compromise is we get salads. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who doesn't take the time to really hear your health concerns or who's in a rush to end your appointments. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc dot com slash start here. When someone on the start here team is out sick, it affects everyone, right? So you try to do your best to communicate when you're going to be out. And this is just a podcast. It's not the military. In the military, you think there would be strict protocols in place to make sure commanders know who's available and who's not. National security could depend on this. Well, if the man who runs the Pentagon suddenly got sick and had to be hospitalized, you'd think his boss would get a call because his boss is the commander-in-chief. But somehow... 
that didn't seem to happen recently. A bizarre story unfolding in Washington this weekend. ABC's Louis Martinez covers the Pentagon. Louis, apparently, like last week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized and no one noticed? What is going on here? That's right, Brad. Not only was he hospitalized, he was in intensive care for part of his hospitalization, and nobody knew about it. Nobody at the White House was told until Thursday night. And this from when the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized on uh, Monday night, New Year's Day. So for three whole days, the White House had no inkling that anything was going wrong with the Secretary of Defense or that he had serious health complications that necessitated him going into intensive care. So you've got a ton of questions being raised about how this could happen and why this happened, because essentially uh, all we know is that the Secretary of Defense went in for a minor elective surgery on December 22nd. He was released from Walter Reed National Military Medical Hospital the following day, and then about a week later on the night of January 1st, he was suffering severe pain. That's what we're hearing from the Pentagon. and that severe pain led him to be transported back to Walter Reed, and then he's placed in ICU. Wow. So he was kept there in ICU uh, after his immediate needs were met, uh, essentially for space issues and for privacy. But, I mean, lots of questions being raised on Capitol Hill, lots of questions being raised among members of the press. Senator Tom Cotton speaking out against the lack of transparency, saying there should be, quote, consequences for this shocking breakdown. And essentially, I think by everybody in the United States who is aware of this, wondering, wait a minute, a senior military military leader, the top defense official in the United States, is incapacitated somehow. Uh, His number two official is kept appraised and makes some routine decisions, Mm. but nobody else in the U.S. government is even made aware of this. And let's make one more point, that when the Pentagon did make it public, it was at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and a hospitalization that that Americans should have been made aware of was kept secret from them. Wait, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but like when you said he went in for the initial thing, we still don't even know what he was going in for. It was a routine medical procedure. That's all we've learned. So, I mean, how does this all happen where people just don't know that this, you know, our guy in charge of the Pentagon is at a commission? There are a lot of theories about what may have happened. I think one of the issues is we know that Secretary Lloyd Austin is an intensely private individual. Um, he's very low-key when it comes uh, to generating interest in what it is that he does because he was on vacation when he had this medical procedure done on him. Um, and so, yeah, that he, I think he's entitled to his right of privacy. Mm. Then when he goes back into the hospital for severe pain, the treatment of severe pain, I think at that point, maybe his staff might have wanted to notify other individuals. What we do know is that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was notified the following day on the Tuesday. But beyond him and beyond the Deputy Secretary of Defense, it appears that nobody else in the administration was told about it. I'm very much looking forward to seeing him fully uh, recovered and um, working side by side. So it sounds like staff may have failed him. Mm. It may have been that... Like, like failed him as in thinking like, oh, no one else needs to know this. We told like the other guys that need to know. Yeah, or maybe it was that the staff, because maybe he was so incapacitated that he couldn't respond. But I think at that point, I mean, that's just passing the buck. Because if you're a staffer, a key staffer, I think at that point you do want to notify somebody that, hey, something very serious is going on with the Secretary of Defense. Well, and so what, like, it's a bad look, certainly, right? And so you can imagine it, it creates a sense of dysfunction. It creates, you know, a sense that there's a lack of communication. But practically, are there implications here, whether military implications or legal implications? I mean, what happens now? Well, there are legitimate concerns about whether any 
past protocols have been violated about notifying Congress, about notifying the White House that a senior administration official is, may have been incapacitated or was experiencing serious medical treatment. Austin issuing a statement this weekend, writing, I recognize I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. But one of the things that the Pentagon has made sure to let us know is that the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, did assume some of the authorities that he had automatically, um, and but that she was just conducting routine business. But remember, during that same week that he was in the hospital, we had a major U.S. retaliatory airstrike inside Baghdad that has had major uh, geopolitical implications. What the Pentagon told us is that that decision, that authority that uh, Austin gave for that airstrike and the president also gave happened before his hospitalization. Mm. But again, how are we supposed to know that? Because he's in the hospital and the staff uh, didn't let anybody know exactly what was going on. What's the reaction from his boss? Because you've been doing reporting trying to figure out like what President Biden's reaction was to all this. Yes, we are told from a U.S. official that uh, President Biden is exasperated by this situation, Wow! Um, that he wants to get down to the bottom of what happened. We understand that a review is going to be conducted, and uh, it's very uh, likely that some people could uh, find themselves in trouble. I think that has to play itself out first. Um, but when you have the president of the United States being kept in the dark until maybe 24 hours before the American public learns of something and three days after your defense secretary is hospitalized, I think that's going to raise serious questions. And that is one of the reasons I think it justifies why President Biden is exasperated. And we asked the White House for an official comment. In addition to that, we were told, quote, the president has full confidence in Secretary Austin. We'll see about that, I guess. Louis Martinez covering the Pentagon. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. At the heart of so much of the violence in the Middle East right now, it's kind of a philosophical question. When someone else attacks you in your country, what is the appropriate response? Lots of countries would say, you gotta do something. So when Hamas carried out its vicious terror attack in southern Israel on October 7th, it knew it would see retaliation. When Israel began bombarding Palestinian neighborhoods, various factions around the region launched new attacks. Yemen's Houthi rebels say they've seized an Israeli-linked cargo ship in the Red Sea. The Iranian-backed groups say that any Israel-linked vessel is a legitimate target given the... And now you got strikes going across the border between Israel and Lebanon. Israel is upping the rhetoric against Hezbollah as the deadly exchanges of fire intensifies along the border. This weekend, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the Mideast on a difficult mission to convince countries it's not in their best interest to respond to every attack and to somehow keep this war from spiraling further and further abroad. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. ABC's Shannon Crawford covers the State Department. Shannon, first of all, just where is Blinken going on this trip? Because it's quite a list. Well, where is he going? He's making nine stops. Many of them are in the Arab world where he's looking to build support for what he calls the day after what's going to happen to Gaza when the bombardment finally ends. Of course, Blinken also making a crucial stop in Israel and the West Bank as he tries to figure out how to find an off-ramp for the Israeli-Hamas war. Right. And so I, what is the message then when you're looking at Jordan and Turkey and these countries in the region that clearly have a vested interest, do you tell them just to stand on the sidelines and watch it all play out? I mean, what is the message from Blinken to some of these you know, Arab world countries? 
Well, what he's really looking to do is for these countries that have been on the sideline of this conflict but are very sympathetic to the Palestinians, what he's doing is telling them to use any leverage they have over these belligerent factions that have been playing so far a pretty small part in the conflict, but they're threatening to really step it up a notch. And I think we also share a commitment to use the influence, the relationships, the ties that we have with different parties in the region to try to avoid escalation and to deter new fronts from opening. Now, Brad, I think you mentioned the Houthis firing into the Red Sea, but there's also Hezbollah. And like Hamas, Hezbollah is an Iranian-backed terror group. Its fighters have been exchanging hits with the Israeli military on the country's border with Lebanon for months now. But in recent days, Hezbollah has been intensifying the fighting there, uh, and there's threats that they could really even escalate further. Okay, so that makes sense. The trip to Israel makes sense. The trip to Qatar makes sense, especially because Qatar's been playing such a key role in all these negotiations with hostage handovers and, and ceasefires. The West Bank you mentioned. So let's just remember for people who might not know the region as well. Gaza is Palestinian territory on one side of Israel, super small. West Bank, the other Palestinian territory, much larger, but it's on the other side of Israel, right? So, I mean, why is Blinken going there and what's he trying to accomplish? Sure. Well, every time Secretary Blinken stops in Israel, of course, he can't go into Gaza right now. It's just the security conditions won't allow for that. But he goes to the West Bank. And the big reason for that is because the Palestinian Authority controls the West Bank. And the U.S. sees that group as being the best suited to govern Gaza after the war ends. Oh, because like, um, what, almost 20 years ago, Hamas was elected, right, before they took the whole place over. But Israel's now like, no, like Hamas is not leading this place anymore. It's going to be someone else. Right. The U.S. and Israel are one mind. Hamas cannot be in charge of Gaza in the future. Hmm. It cannot be the place where they can launch what we saw on October 7th ever again. That's why ending the conflict and finding, as we just discussed, a genuinely durable, lasting peace. But the problem there is that there really aren't any ideal options for someone who can take over in Gaza and also have the support of the Palestinian people. Now, when we look at the Palestinian Authority, really, they're not wildly popular in the West Bank. Uh, they've been plagued by corruption. Uh, when it comes to Palestinian politics, they're really leaders from a different generation. But what Secretary Blinken's trying to do is encourage them to get their act together so hopefully when this war does finally come to a close, they'll be in a place where they can step in and at least help out during an intermediary period where elections can be planned in Gaza. Right, really interesting. And of course, like the U.S. and Israel can want whoever they want to lead an area, but like you can't just unilaterally install a new government. So it's kind of about like getting everyone on the same page here. Big job for Antony Blinken this week. Uh, Shannon Crawford covering the State Department. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. One more quick break. When we come back, it's the People's Park, but which people? One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And one last thing, it's home to some of the most notable civic protests of the Vietnam War era. Maybe a lot more things could be worked out now that <laughs> the people have a park. In 1969, People's Park in Berkeley, California, was ground zero for activists. It served as a beacon of free speech, with a microphone open to anyone and everyone who wanted to speak. It was frequented by hippies, by war protesters. The Black Panther Party circulated articles about this park's importance. This weekend, it looked like little more than a plot of dirt, where grass and signs had once stood. Demolition crews had sprouted up instead. See, this isn't actually a traditional public park. It's owned by the University of California, Berkeley, and the college now says it wants to build housing here. But this has ignited protests reminiscent of half a century ago. See, back in the 1960s, this lot was derelict. It was a giant mud patch, home to abandoned cars, until local volunteers decided to turn it into a park. Forget that it's owned by somebody else, they said. This space will stand for power to the people. Well, right when they had finally brought in trees and flowers and sod, revitalized the neighborhood, the university said, actually, we are ready to build here now. You need to leave. At one point, there were violent clashes between police and thousands of protesters who tried to tear down chain-link fences that had gone up overnight. The National Guard was called in. This latest trouble at Berkeley may be over for a while, at least until the rebels can find a new symbol. But in an area where feelings have been polarized to extremes, tension remains and the troops are still in town. Well, cut to last week, this place had remained a park for the last five decades, when police conducted an overnight raid. Police in full tactical gear arrived to close off streets and remove the remaining people living in the park. Protesters tried to stop them, but police arrested seven of them. Crews put up new barriers, not chain-link fences. This time, the site has been surrounded by shipping containers, so you can't even see inside. This weekend, you could hear the sound of chainsaws taking down trees. Local advocates were furious. We need a place where community members can find each other and learn about their history of Berkeley. That's a human right. Knowing what your culture is, having water, having food. This whole back and forth is fraught with irony because many of these activists have pressed for more affordable housing. The original plans for the site would have built residences for low-income and homeless people, many of who camped out in People's Park before this. Local students say rent in town is too high. Well, this site would be home to new dorms. It raises the question of what's more important, space with which to protest or getting the stuff you protested for. But it's not just awkward for the demonstrators. Before the 60s, this spot used to be filled with houses until UC Berkeley had them torn down. That's right, the school wanted to build bigger structures back then, so they used eminent domain to kick people off their land. The money then dried up, leaving just a vacant lot. Now they're kicking people off parkland in the name of building houses. We house currently about 20 to 23 percent of our undergraduate and graduate student population. So that is the lowest in the UC system. School officials say the new site will be much improved and that post-construction, two-thirds of it will still be public space. It'll largely still serve as a park. But many locals say that misses the whole point. University board trustees, they say, effectively gave up the rights to this place through years of neglect. It's now the people's park, they say, and its fate should remain in the hands of neighbors. 
are still court rulings to be made on the construction itself, but the demolition, it's already happened. It's done. It's just a complete lightning rod there in the Bay Area. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.